Good morning. It is a big word today, but only because I have tons of scripture. <laughs> so I don't think it'll take any longer than usual. <laughs> the title of this morning's message is, What About Those Scary Verses in Hebrews 10? <laughs> today we are going to be continuing in chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews. And we will work our way into what some have called the scariest verses in the New Testament. But are they actually scary? <laughs> or are they simply misinterpreted? These so-called scary verses are verses 25 through 31 of chapter 10. And I have them for you in the King James, 25 through 31. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as ye see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye that he shall be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth to me, and I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, doesn't that sound like the gospel? <laughs> no, no, it doesn't. <laughs> and that's because there's no context. And that is... What's wrong with people reading this, these verses is they don't put them in their proper context. At first glance, yes, these verses sound very scary. But if we take the time and put them in their proper context, both historically and scripturally, we will find that they're not actually scary at all. Not for believers today. Yes, they contain a warning. But exactly who is being warned and what? exactly are they being warned about? If we want to properly understand this passage of Scripture, we have to apply proper historical context and appropriate audience relevance. The appropriate audience relevance is not us. <laughs> he is not talking to us. This letter or book was not written to us, and that's important for us to remember. This book was written specifically to the Hebrew believers who were alive somewhere between A.D. 65 and 68, just a few years before the promised judgment was going to fall upon unbelieving Israel and the entire Old Covenant system. With all of its sacrifices and temple worship, all of it was going to be completely over. Everything of the Old Covenant was going to be completely destroyed, and they knew it. <laughs> they knew this. They didn't know exactly when it was going to take place, but Jesus did tell them in what period of time they should expect it. We can see this in Matthew chapter 24, 
beginning with verse 33. So also, when ye see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. A generation was 40 years. So he's telling them, within the next 40 years, this bad thing is going to happen. <laughs> he says, heaven and earth will pass away. Heaven and earth is Jewish code for the temple because that's how they understood the temple. That's where heaven and God met the earth and met man. So their Jewish code was heaven and earth was the temple. So he says, the temple will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Again, the Jewish believers called their temple, they nicknamed it, heaven and earth. That was what they were supposed to think when they went near it. This is where God meets with man. But he said, this is going to pass away. He told them specifically, it's going to be destroyed. They just didn't know the time or the hour. But they knew the time period. They knew it was in that window of 40 years. They didn't know when in the, that 40 years. They just knew that sometime in the next 40 years, what God has already promised and foretold is going to happen. So these particular Hebrews were actually expecting the destruction of Jerusalem at some point. But as babies in their understanding of the new covenant, they were also struggling with their understanding of whether or not they would also be recipients of that judgment. Because they did not understand the forever forgiveness and the everlasting righteousness provided through the new covenant. And the author of Hebrews told them this in chapter 5 of Hebrews, verses 12 and 13. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, <laughs> you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. They didn't understand everlasting righteousness. And because of that, they struggled about, am I really right with God? <laughs> am I always right with God? So he tells them, you're a baby, you're baby believers, you, and that's what they were. They were baby believers, and a whole bunch of the church are baby believers because they are never sure that they're right with God. I fell. I made a mistake. I said something I shouldn't. I did something I shouldn't. God must be mad. He must have kicked me out. No, that's all old covenant thinking. And this is what the baby Hebrews struggled with all the time because they had listened to the law every day of their life. Listening to Holy Spirit was a new idea. <laughs> and Holy Spirit sounds very different than Moses. <laughs> so the audience for the scripture we just read is not us. He's not talking to us today. The judgment that was threatened is also not for us today. It is time bound to that time in history. And the judgment that unbelieving Israel would incur was only for unbelieving Israel. And that's because it was promised to Israel when she first entered into covenant with God at Mount Sinai. And she was happy to receive it because <laughs> she thought, we can do this. 
And God says, well, let me tell you what's going to happen to you when you don't. <laughs> In Deuteronomy chapter 28, God sets forth all the blessings promised to Israel for her faithfulness and all the curses that would come upon Israel as a nation if they failed to be faithful to God as a whole. I have a sample for you so you can get a little flavor <laughs> of what they had in their minds all the time. Deuteronomy 28, 45. All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. They shall be a sign and a wonder against you and your offspring forever. <laughs> because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things. Therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst in nakedness and lacking everything. He will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. <laughs> this is a promise. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> 49, the Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like an eagle. Guess what the Roman army's emblem was? It was an eagle. Swooping down like an eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. It shall eat the offspring of your cattle and the fruit of your ground until you are destroyed. It also shall not leave you grain, wine, or oil, the increase of your herds, or the young of your flock, until they have caused you to perish. They shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land. And they shall besiege you in all of your towns throughout all of your land, which the Lord your God has given you. And you shall eat the fruit of your womb. Yes, they were found eating their children. <laughs> you shall eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you, in the siege and in distress with which your enemies shall distress you. And this is exactly what happened to unbelieving Israel in AD 70. The Roman army decided that they had enough of unbelieving Israel <laughs> because unbelieving Israel was always poking the giant empire with a stick. We're going to kill you. We're going to take over. <laughs> it's unbelievably stupid. But Rome got tired of unbelieving Israel causing so much problems, so they decided to get rid of unbelieving Israel. Jesus also prophesied the demise of unbelieving Israel in Luke chapter 21, verses 20 and 22. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are the days of vengeance, to fulfill what is written, to fulfill what was promised. If you follow me, if you follow the Lord, this will not come upon you. You think they'd be really, you know, adamant about following the Lord, <laughs> that they weren't. <laughs> Jesus knew what was in store for unbelieving Israel because it was promised under the old covenant. Also, even though these scriptures say that God was the one who would bring the curses on them, in actuality, 
unbelieving Israel actually brought forth their own demise all by themselves. <laughs> they were constantly trying to pick a fight with the giant. To give you some idea about how stupid this is, <laughs> the nation of Israel was and is small enough to fit inside the state of Wisconsin with lots of room to spare. It's a teeny, teeny, tiny little nation, very small. To let you have some idea how big Rome was, the United States times two. That is not wise. <laughs> to poke a giant and say, I'm going to take you. <laughs> it was utterly ridiculous. <laughs> and it didn't turn out well for them. <laughs> now, Jesus also told his listeners that there would be a way of escape from this judgment for those who believed on him. And he told them when they should look for it, which was when they were surrounded by armies. Now, I don't think anyone was really happy about that answer. <laughs> we're going to be surrounded by the enemy, and that's when you're going to rescue us? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Gee, thanks, Jesus. <laughs> so, <laughs> when Jerusalem began to be surrounded by the armies of Rome, which was a year or two before this letter was written, because, again, we don't know exactly the time period between when this letter was written to them and when the end of Israel happened. That's why people don't know about this. The Bible doesn't tell us. It doesn't record the fulfillment of the prophecy. We see it in Old Testament. We see it in Jesus. Nobody wrote the end of the book. Because <laughs> they had to get out of Dodge. <laughs> So sometime prior to the fall of Jerusalem, a large part of the Roman army had surrounded Jerusalem and then suddenly, for no apparent reason, stopped attacking. Even though they could have easily overrun Jerusalem at that time, taken everything, just super easy. But for some unknown reason, like the hand of God, <laughs> God said, stop that. <laughs> you see all these armies, believers? Get out of town. Save yourselves. That is what happened. So, yes, the believers who had listened to Jesus, who knew what the Old Covenant had promised, all got out of Dodge, and they went to a neighboring community called Pella. And according to historians, no Christians died in Jerusalem when it was overrun by Rome and burned to the ground. And that's because they listened. They listened to Jesus. They listened to the authors of the New Testament. They listened. They knew it was coming. But Christians often read the New Testament and they have no idea. So they interpret these scriptures to think it's talking to them when it's not. It wasn't talking to us. The book of Hebrews is addressed to baby Hebrew believers sometime before the fall of Jerusalem. And in this book, they are warned about the promised judgment that was to come upon, again, unbelieving Hebrews and the entire city and temple. This is the historical context of Hebrews. It's impossible to understand the book of Hebrews appropriately if you take it out of its time period and put it in today. Because there is no judgment coming. 
We are not looking for Jesus to come back and blast everybody to smithereens. That's not Jesus' heart. (laughs) He's already forgiven everybody of their sin. They just need to receive it. God is not mad. Now, God hates evil because evil hurts people, and he happens to love the people. (laughs) So he's not going to come back and smash everybody. That's not what God has in mind. So we cannot properly understand this scary scripture apart from understanding its placement in history. We also cannot understand these scriptures if we take them out of their scriptural context. But you can't understand these scary scriptures if you don't know what comes before it. I mean, the whole theme of the book of Hebrews is Jesus is better. (laughs) He's like super abundant better than anything the old covenant has. The author is trying to get them to have faith, to trust God and his promises. Even the old ones that don't pertain to them anymore. So let's look at the first half of chapter 10, uh, beginning with verse 1. I have it in the Passion Translation. The old system of living under the law presented us with only a faint shadow, a crude outline of the reality of the wonderful blessings to come. Even with its steady stream of sacrifices offered year after year, there was still nothing that could make our hearts perfect before God. He's telling them the old system never worked. Don't go back to it. (laughs) It doesn't work anymore. Verse 2 and 3. For if animal sacrifices could once and for all eliminate sin, they would have ceased to be offered, and the worshipers would have clean consciences. Instead, once was not enough. So by the repetitive sacrifices year after year, the worshipers were continually reminded of their sins with their hearts still impure. For what power does the blood of bulls and goats have to remove sin's guilt? None. (laughs) So when Jesus the Messiah came into the world, he said, since your ultimate desire was not another animal sacrifice, you have clothed me with a body that I might offer myself instead. This is a really important verse for these Hebrew baby believers because that's what they were doing. They cared. They cared that they sinned. They were afraid that they were not right with God when they sinned. And so for this author to say, not another lamb, not another sacrifice, it doesn't do anything. It's just your unbelief. You're not making yourself right with God. It doesn't work that way because Jesus' sacrifice is eternally effective. He only needed to do it once. Verse 6. Multiple burnt offerings and sin offerings cannot satisfy your justice. So I said to you, God, I will be the one to go and do your will, to fulfill all that is written of me in your word. First, he said, multiple burnt offerings and sin offerings cannot satisfy your justice, even though the law required them to be offered. And then he said, God, I will be the one to go and to do your will, to execute your will, a written will that God had written through the scripture, and Jesus came to fulfill so that everything that the Father has and is, is willed to us. We are the inheritors of God and all that he is. So that helps us understand that this is not about works righteousness. This is about my Father. (laughs) My Father has willed me, 
everything that he is and everything he has in his kingdom. And then he said, God, I will be the one to go and do and execute your will. So by being the sacrifice that removes sin, he abolishes animal sacrifices and replaces that entire system with a new covenant. By God's will, we have been, past tense, we have been purified and made holy once and for all, for all time, (laughs) through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus, the Messiah. Yet, every day, priests still serve, ritually offering the same sacrifices again and again. Sacrifices that can never take away sin's guilt. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered the one supreme sacrifice for sin for all time, he sat down on a throne at the right hand of God, waiting until all his whispering enemies are subdued and turned into his footstool. And by his one perfect sacrifice, he made us perfectly holy and complete for all time. He changed what we were. Under the old covenant, they were never changed. And the fact that they were so rebellious proved that they never changed. (laughs) He takes us out of the kingdom of darkness and he plants us in the kingdom of light where sin no longer separates us from our Father. Ever. Now, sin can separate you from good things. Relationships. Money, health, (laughs) sin is bad for you. Don't do it. (laughs) But if you do, it doesn't separate you from your father, ever. Verse 15. The Holy Spirit confirms this to us by this scripture. For the Lord says, afterwards, I will give them this covenant. I will embed my laws into their hearts and fasten my word to their thoughts. These are not the Ten Commandments. These are the law of faith and the law of love that operate in the new covenant. They are laws of supply on how the kingdom works. Verse 17, and then he says, I will not ever again, I will not ever again remember their sins and lawless deeds. And we could add against them. It isn't that they'll never happen. (laughs) It isn't that we will never make mistakes. (laughs) It's that they won't be counted against us in our Father's kingdom. So if our sins have been forgiven and forgotten, why would we ever need to offer another sacrifice for sin? See, the author of Hebrews is asking these baby Hebrew believers, if this is true, if Jesus is as good as I say, then why are you taking lambs to the temple, thinking that you're not still right with your heavenly Father? Verse 19, and now we are brothers and sisters in God's family, because of the blood of Jesus. And he welcomes us to come right into the most holy sanctuary in the heavenly realm. Boldly, with no hesitation, even if you sinned. (laughs) You should run there when you sin. (laughs) Verse 20, for he has dedicated a new life-giving way for us to approach God. For just as the veil was torn in two, Jesus' body was torn open to give us free and fresh access to him. And the term free and fresh is one Greek word that means forever fresh. Forever freshly slain. You never need another sacrifice. Verse 21. 
And since we now have a magnificent king priest to welcome us into God's house, we come closer to God and approach him with an open heart, fully convinced by faith that nothing will keep us at a distance from him. There is no distance for a believer. Nothing can come between you and your Jesus or you and your Father. Nothing. Again, past tense. For our hearts have been sprinkled with blood, spiritually speaking, to remove impurity. He removed our impure nature. And we have been freed from an accusing conscience. And now we are clean, unstained, and presentable to God inside and out. And we could add, forever. (laughs) Now, this is where I left off the last time I ministered from the book of Hebrews. And I tried not to re-preach the entire passage. (laughs) But we have to interpret what follows this passage in the light of this passage. You have to hear how certain this author is about the effectiveness of the blood of Jesus. That no matter what happens, no matter how many times you fall, no matter how badly you fall, nothing will separate you from your father. Sin doesn't separate a believer from their father. It separates you from good things on earth. (laughs) But the good news is never from our father, never from our Jesus, and never from our Holy Spirit. Since most of us are accustomed to hearing the following passage of scary scriptures (laughs) in the King James, I decided to show you both the King James and the Passion Translation together. The Passion Translation does a pretty good job of trying to explain what is written in Greek. But I also want to be able to address why the following passage sounds so scary in the King James. So we're going to look at both. So beginning with verse 22 again. In the King James, it says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. How do we come to God? In full assurance of faith. We don't come afraid because he's not mad. If you fall down, he wants to pick you up and heal what's broken. He's not a mad dad. So we can come, even when we fall down, into our Father's presence in fullness of faith. Fully assured, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. That's what that evil conscience is. It tells you you're bad and dad's mad and boy, you're going to get it now. (laughs) No. (laughs) And our bodies washed with pure water. The same verse in the Passion. We come closer to God and approach him with an open heart, fully convinced by faith that nothing will keep us at a distance from him. For our hearts have been, past tense, sprinkled with blood to remove impurity. And we have been freed from an accusing conscience. And now we are clean, unstained, and presentable to God inside and out. Understanding that the truth of what Jesus has provided us as a gift of his grace enables us to be fully convinced in our hearts that absolutely nothing can separate us from our Heavenly Father ever again. Not even sin is stronger than the blood of Jesus. This is the good news of the new covenant. Jesus has provided us with an eternally effective, permanent access to our Father and all of his goodness, which is why we can always 
Draw near to our Father without fear of rejection. We don't ever have to be afraid of our Father. We are always welcome at the throne of grace because Jesus has already made us completely presentable to our Father. Also, the phrase having our bodies washed with pure water has nothing to do with Christian baptism. (laughs) It's not Jesus plus water baptism. (laughs) This is addressing how the sacrifice of Christ obliterates the need for all of the Old Testament ceremonial cleansings that were required under the law. If a lady had her monthly cycle, she had to take a bath before she would be acceptable to God. If a man had an emission during the night, he had to take a bath before he could be approved of by God. None of that is part of our life. We don't do anything to become clean. Jesus has made us forever clean. Verse 23, in the King James, let us hold fast our profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And in the Passion, so now we must cling tightly to the hope, the confident expectation of good that lives within us, knowing that God always keeps his promises. Here, the author is encouraging his readers to continue to stay steadfast in their confidence in Jesus alone, (laughs) not to cast away their trust in what he has accomplished on their behalf by going back into Judaism. Because the persecution was so severe, they thought, we can fix this. (laughs) I can just go back to being just a Jew, and all of this horrible stuff will stop happening to me. And they were right, (laughs) to an extent. See, they thought they could save themselves. They didn't actually have to trust the Lord. But they didn't know when the judgment was coming. So if I go back to Judaism tomorrow, (laughs) how long am I safe? (laughs) And will God be mad? (laughs) The author has gone through all nine and most of ten chapters trying to convince them that it is safer to trust in Jesus than it is to trust in themselves and their own ability to make themselves right. Jesus told them about a physical salvation that was going to happen. He said, when you see the armies, just run. It was a hand of God that stayed the armies so that all the Christians could get out of town. So that none of the Christians would go through a judgment that did not belong to them. (laughs) But see, they were setting themselves up to be inside that judgment because of fear, doubt, and unbelief. But he told them, You just need to be patient. My rescue is coming. Just be patient. As you can see, I have highlighted the words faith and hope in these two versions of this verse. And that's because the word translated as faith in the King James in this verse is not the same word for faith in the previous verse. It is actually more correct to translate it as hope. And I have the definitions from the Strong's Concordance for you to see. Faith is something that happens to us. You cannot make faith. (laughs) I tried for years. (laughs) 
Faith is what happens to you when the Holy Spirit convinces you of the truth. It is a work of the Holy Spirit. Faith is when you are persuaded. It is persuasion to be convinced of a truth. Now, hope, hope is the word el peace, and it means to anticipate, usually with pleasure. So it's considered an expectation, and it's also a confidence, faith, and that can be translated either way. But it helps us to understand that the author actually picked a different word for this word that in the Passion Translation is translated hope. And it's because he needs them to, to have patience. <laughs> faith and hope are very closely related. And that's because faith believes to receive from the Lord now. When we ask that Jesus come into our heart, we want it now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but for heaven, I don't think anybody's wanting any heaven today. I think they want that in the future. Right? <laughs> I mean, maybe you'll go home if to heaven if you want to, but, but most of us want to stick around. <laughs> so that's what hope is. I know heaven belongs to me now. It's my present possession spiritually, but I don't want to go today. I want to go in the future. That's his point with using this different word. Yes, you have to have faith. I believe I received today. I believe the word of God today. But for heaven, I want it in the future. <laughs> now they wanted their deliverance from persecution today but God said in the future <laughs> just be patient <laughs> so faith believes for something now and hope believes for something in the future which is why when we speak about going to heaven it is the hope we have the confident expectation of good that we will receive a heavenly welcome because we are, it's already our home we're already there in Christ Jesus at the right hand of the father so that's why hope is actually a little bit better of a translation it's about when we receive <laughs> verse 24 let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works the passion translation says it this way Discover creative ways to encourage each other and to motivate them toward acts of compassion, doing beautiful works as expressions of love. The word consider and the word discover are equally correct. <laughs> They're equally correct translations according to the Strong's Concordance. The Passion translation just expands on the definition, encouraging us to discover creative ways of encouraging and loving others. When life is hard for us, the best medicine for us is to concentrate on loving someone else. Years ago, I worked at uh, a big factory for Motorola. And um, I was not in ministry at the time. I was working, raising children. <laughs> and I would get phone calls. Now, I worked crazy schedules, 12-hour days. And people from work would call me and want to talk about their lives and Jesus. And I'm like, Lord, I really don't have time for this. <laughs> but I would say, okay, Lord, how can I help them? <laughs> and as I was telling them what the Lord was telling me to tell them, I would hear the Lord speaking through my own words what I needed to hear. <laughs> the best way to hear Jesus <laughs> is to let Jesus minister to somebody else through you because he will minister to you as well that is the point of these encouragements you can't help but be loved when you're loving somebody else <laughs> that's the point 
So the King James also uses the word good for the good works. And it is more correct. It's not wrong that King James uses the word good. It does mean good, but it means so much more. That's what I like about being able to look at these words. It means more than just good. It means beautiful, exquisite, wonderful. <laughs> it isn't just good. It's also valuable. It's also useful. You say, I can choose to do a good work. But to do a beautiful work, it's got to be Jesus. It's got to be Jesus in me. It's got to be Jesus through me. Jesus knows exactly what to say and exactly what to do. And there's a difference between me being trying to be good and Jesus showing up in my mouth. <laughs> in today's world, many believers have already given up on going to church. Thanks to COVID. <laughs> when COVID came around and they said, nobody can go to church, <laughs> people started watching church online. And they thought, this is a pretty good deal. You don't have to get up and take a shower. You can wear your jammies all day. <laughs> I don't have to deal with other people. <laughs> and they thought, this is a great deal. <laughs> and some people just decided that that was easier. So they forsook meeting together. This is not about Sabbath keeping. This is about congregating with like-minded believers. What people don't realize is that God designed us because we are sheep-like, that we do better in flocks. <laughs> we do better together. <laughs> Church was never meant to be just about hearing a sermon. Church was and is an opportunity to make a difference in someone else's life through loving and encouraging them. And when we choose to invest in loving others, our Father always has a way of multiplying that love back to us, which is why the author continues this thought in verse 25. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. Passion Translation. This is not the time to pull away and neglect meeting together, as some have formed the habit of doing. Because we need each other. In fact, we should come together even more frequently, <laughs> eager to encourage and urge each other onward as we anticipate that day dawning. The Hebrew baby believers, in an effort to keep themselves safe from persecution and death, <laughs> had stopped meeting with other believers in Jesus thinking that that was the best way to stay alive. Seemed like a good idea. Just stay home, you won't get COVID. <laughs> but the author basically tells them that the harder life becomes, the more they actually needed to gather with members of the body of Christ so that the Holy Spirit could speak into their hearts and lives and encourage them to continue in the truths about Jesus and the new covenant. You see, if they went back into Judaism, they're not going to hear anything good about Jesus. <laughs> and faith comes by what? Faith is activated by hearing. They needed to continue hearing the truth of Jesus. Now, there was a day of judgment coming upon the entire Old Testament system. And the King James uses the phrase, the day. <laughs> and these Hebrew baby believers knew exactly what that meant. You see, 
most of us, for a really long time, did not know what that meant. <laughs> it wasn't the day the world would end. It was the day the Jewish world would end. Their whole world revolved around the temple. So when that temple came down, their whole world changed. They no longer had a way to get forgiveness in a way that they were accustomed to. So when the temple came down, that meant no more lambs, no more forgiveness, <laughs> no more offering anything to God as a way of getting God to bless them. That's what they were used to. That's what the unbelieving Jews kept doing. Under the old system of covering over sins one at a time, that system was put completely out of business by Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice at the cross. One sacrifice for all sin, for all time, all at one time. Everything that's been counted against you has been paid for. The sin debt is paid. They will never be held against you again. And this is the truth that the author of Hebrews is trying to convince these Hebrew baby believers of. They needed to understand that they didn't need more forgiveness or extra forgiveness <laughs> because they had already been made forever righteous and holy. You see, when you, we think that righteousness is what I do, and you slip. <laughs> oh, man, I'm not righteous anymore. Wrong. <laughs> Wrong. I am made righteous in my spirit, man. And God is teaching me to walk out in accordance with my righteousness. But I never lose my righteousness. I am forever right with God. Nothing can separate me. But that's what these Hebrew baby believers were having trouble believing. Because forever for them, if you sinned, you took an offering. There was no forever forgiveness. Moses never offered that to them. In fact, he tells them, if you don't bring a lamb, <laughs> you're in big trouble. <laughs> so this was their mindset. So converting, letting the Holy Spirit change their minds to the reality of the new covenant was really hard for them. And if you don't think so, just talk to believers who don't believe in grace. They are sure we're going to hell. <laughs> you're not perfect. Therefore, you've got to ask for forgiveness every single day because you don't even know the all different ways you can sin. You know, that's true. Most of us don't even realize when we are falling short of perfection until Holy Spirit says, um, excuse me, <laughs> maybe you should apologize for that. <laughs> that was not kind. <laughs> sin does not separate a believer. And that was not true under the old covenant. And so this whole flip-flop of the new covenant was really hard at the beginning. It took me forever, even after the Lord showed me, this is grace, this is how it works, this is what I always wanted. I would say, yes, and then in a couple of days, are you sure? <laughs> you sure this works this way, Jesus? <laughs> and he would tell me again. And he would show me again. And some time would go by, and that old stuff in my brain, you sure it's okay to wear slacks? <laughs> sure it's okay to cut my hair? <laughs> you sure, Jesus? 
And then the more you, that I would read and understand correctly, the more my heart was convinced. And the more convinced I am about Jesus, the less, in fact, I don't even think about sin anymore. I don't desire to sin anymore. I have Jesus. Are you kidding me? <laughs> if I need something, I'm going to ask my dad. I don't have to go try to get it myself. My dad is the one who takes care of me. These Hebrew baby believers needed to understand that they didn't need more forgiveness. Extra forgiveness. You'll say, like, okay, I got Jesus, but maybe a lamb. Just get a little extra forgiveness to make sure. <laughs> No, <laughs> they didn't understand that they're perfect and complete in their spirit and nothing can ever separate them from their complete acceptance by their father. The author of Hebrew works very hard throughout this entire book to convince them of these marvelous realities. Now, verse 26, here's the scary ones, right? For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. What? <laughs> I thought I didn't need any more sacrifices for sins. <laughs> and in the Passion, it says, it's even a little more scarier, I think. For if we continue to persist in deliberate sin after we have known and received the truth, there is not another sacrifice for sin to be made. Now, this verse appears to be in direct opposition to the entire first half of this chapter. <laughs> not to mention the entire book of Hebrews so far. But it's really not. The author is not saying, just ignore everything I just told you about your spiritual perfection and completion in Christ and be afraid, very afraid, of sinning to the point of losing your salvation. That is not what this verse is trying to convey. The author is talking to Hebrew baby believers who were continuing to try to get more forgiveness from God by taking lambs to the temple. Like many believers today, they thought that when they sinned or fell short of our Father's glorious perfection, they were no longer in right standing with God because that is how it had always worked under the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant system only managed their sin problem. It never had the ability to actually remove sin and sinfulness from a believer which was the whole problem with the Old Covenant. It couldn't make a worshiper perfect and complete in their spirit, which is why God brought forth the New Covenant. So the willful sin that the author is talking about is making the choice to ignore what God has revealed through Jesus and the New Covenant and to purposely go back into Judaism and temple worship. Anybody here doing that? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> That's the willful sin he's talking about, going back into Judaism. We don't have a temple. We don't have lamps. We can't do this. <laughs> this is not a scripture for us. <laughs> the author is trying to convince them that there is no more forgiveness to be obtained through the lambs. Because they don't need more forgiveness if they believe in Jesus. <laughs> Because Jesus has already placed them in right standing with their father. We're in a whole different kingdom and we cannot get out. Jesus' sacrifice is the last sacrifice that God accepted as a means of paying our sin debt. And God will not accept any 
sacrificial lambs as a means of trying to make themselves right. And God will not accept our begging and pleading. Do you ever do that? <laughs> I'm so sorry, God, I'm so sorry. <laughs> please, please don't be mad at me. Please, please. <laughs> That's the same thing as taking a lamb, <laughs> thinking I need more forgiveness. <laughs> now, it is always appropriate for us to apologize to the Father when we sin. Not because he'll be mad if we don't, but because we will feel better if we do. <laughs> That's the only reason. <laughs> we will feel better. Oh, Lord, I'm sorry. I failed. I'm really sorry. And you can say it a million times if you need to so that you will feel better. God, I thank you that the blood of Jesus is enough to save me and to keep me. I thank you I don't have to beg for forgiveness. I'm sorry about what I just said or did. But I thank you that it doesn't separate you from me. I thank you that you're my help. You're my reason to not choose sin. All I got to do is come to the throne of grace, and you are my help in time of need. Verse 27. But a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. The Passion says it this way. But this would qualify one for certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the raging fire ready to burn up his enemies. Sounds pretty scary. <laughs> but this verse is not about a believer in Jesus. <laughs> this is not about being thrown into hell. But that is exactly how many believers interpret this verse. They think this is God threatening believers that if they sin willfully, he'll throw them right into hell. Okay, did we read the first half of this chapter? Barely perfect and complete. Hell? <laughs> no. <laughs> but what were these Hebrew baby believers doing? Going back into Judaism, hanging out with a community of unbelievers who were going to come under judgment. So isn't it really a good idea to go over and be with them? <laughs> no. What's going to happen? Jerusalem is going to be overrun and destroyed by fire. Now, if you want to, you could. <laughs> but who would want to? <laughs> Believers try to understand this scripture without understanding its historical context, without understanding its scriptural context, and they read themselves into the scripture. All sin is willful. All sin is willful. We choose it. Is it smart? No. <laughs> Will it hurt you? Yeah. Will it send you to hell? No. It could get you into a whole different kind of fire. But, <laughs> but it, it will never separate you from your father. The only way you can misinterpret this scripture is to lift it out of its context and apply it to yourself. It doesn't belong to us. It belongs to them. When Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed in AD 70, approximately one million unbelieving Hebrews died. And another 100,000 were taken into slavery and shipped off to other countries. And the author of Hebrews was trying to convince these Hebrew baby believers that they would not be able to avoid that promised destruction if they went back into Judaism. The warning is about keeping them physically safe. Don't go back to the old ways. Not only is there no more forgiveness there, it doesn't work, but you'll die physically. Don't do that. 
<laughs> Verse 28, King James. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Passion says anyone who disobeyed Moses' law died without mercy on the simple evidence of two or three witnesses. This verse tells us to look back at the other one. What was the warning for? Dying. <laughs> Even under the old covenant, somebody could say, we found you, and actually has to do with idolatry. We found this person, they were committing idolatry, and the prescription is death. But you couldn't just accuse somebody because you couldn't hate your neighbor and say, I saw him committing idolatry and then, you know, have him killed. <laughs> God said, no, I'm not going to leave that option open for you. You have to have two or three witnesses. <laughs> In case you get tempted. <laughs> but what was the punishment? Was it hell or was it death? It was death. The author of Hebrews is trying to convince these Hebrew baby believers that going back into Judaism, being part of an unbelieving community, would end up in their physical death. It had nothing to do with hell. So are these scary scriptures really scary? No, because they don't pertain to us. We don't have a temple, and we're not taking lambs. <laughs> and we're not joining ourselves to an unbelieving community that rejects Jesus. We're not guilty of any of the things that these Hebrew baby believers were thinking of doing. <laughs> so these scriptures do not pertain to us. But I want you to understand, it matters how we read the Bible. It matters that we know the historical context, the scriptural context. We have to know what comes before the scary scriptures so that the scriptures can take the scary out of our misinterpretation. That's why we have to understand the history as well as the scripture. Amen? Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth. We thank you, Father God, that you open our eyes more and more to be able to understand the context of scripture and that we can learn when we see something that sounds a little scary, we can just back up that truck. <laughs> Wait a minute, what did he say? What did he really say? He said, I am perfect forever. I am righteous forever. He is my father forever. I have a forever forgiveness. I have a forever relationship with my heavenly father and nothing, not sin, not anything, can ever change that. Father God, we thank you that you are continuing to renew our mind to our righteousness. And the more that we understand that we are right, we are pure, we are holy, we are clean. Even when we fall down, we're still clean. You never turn us away. We are always, always, always and forever welcome at the throne of grace where we receive help. We receive instruction. We receive revelation. We receive of your life and your goodness, Father. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Mark Testerman, Senior Pastor of Triumphant Grace Ministries. I want to say thank you for listening to the finished work gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that the good news found throughout the message has richly encouraged you in the love of the Father. Friends, this podcast is supported by the generous financial support of its listeners. And if today's message has ministered to you, 
then would you consider a gift that ministers back to us? You can text the word GIVE, G-I-V-E, to 833-632-1315, or you can visit triumphantgrace.com and donate through PayPal or credit card. The cornerstone scripture for Triumphant Grace Ministries is found in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Great grace, such grace, triumphant grace to you. God bless you.